And as you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of 2 Timothy. And we have been uh, launching into our summer series. We started it last week and we're calling it Finishing Strong. Finishing Strong. And uh, you'll notice that this is the final chapter. We talked about this last week. Really the final chapter of the life of the Apostle Paul. His life is coming to a close and he's passing the baton off to his young protege in the faith, Timothy And if you pick up on that race analogy, he's looking at Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, it's hard. The Christian life is hard. The ministry is hard that has been entrusted to you. But it's necessary, Timothy, as you look at me and I'm in prison awaiting my my own death for the cause of Jesus Christ, it's necessary that you understand that endurance is required in the Christian life and especially for those who are in ministry. You know, endurance, that concept of endurance is a staple for the vast majority of athletes, most sports require a high level of endurance for any degree of success, unless you consider baseball a sport. Ooh, ooh, that hit close to home, didn't it? (laughs) Endurance is necessary, especially when it comes to elite Athletics, even baseball, okay, baseball, you have to have an incredible amount of endurance, and the higher you get in the elite levels of sport, the more endurance is required because the talent level continues to escalate. Endurance is one of those things, both in athletics and in the spiritual life, that is hard to gain and easy to lose. In athletics, a lot of times what they consider this to be, they call this base training, They call it building the base, getting that foundational endurance in place that you can build upon, right? Because all of the talents and abilities that you have, in some sense, at certain levels, uh, become utterly uh, worthless if you don't have the endurance to back up and to underpin those talents and skills. Building that base will enable you to finish strong, to not fade down the finishing stretch, to not lose ground in the race that is set before you. You lose this endurance, and no matter how naturally skilled or gifted you are, if you can't last, you won't win. You won't succeed. You won't excel. Last week, we saw Paul introduce this letter, and we we really saw the heart of a father. The heart of a father to not only implant the faith into a a child, a spiritual child, but also to have his child hold fast to the faith that had been implanted. And here Paul now begins to remind Timothy of what is foundational. He's going back to the basics. He's bringing him back to building that base that was so necessary and that if you keep coming back to, will enable you to endure to the end. It will enable you to finish strong. So this morning I want to give us from this text, three foundational requirements for enduring faith. Consider this in your spiritual life, building that base that will help you endure in your faith. Let's read the word of God together. Let's pick back up in verse six. Paul says this, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, 
who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul comes alongside Timothy. And he wants to bring him back to what is foundational in the Christian life to endure to the end, to finish strong. The first foundational requirement for enduring faith is this. We need to tap into the unmatched resources of the Spirit. We need to learn how to do this in an ongoing, regular sort of way. The resources that are given to us in the Spirit of God are in some senses unlimited, but they are certainly unmatched. And I want you to think unmatched in comparison, listen, to the natural abilities and resources that you can kind of gain on your own. Paul begins in verse 6 with a reminder to look back. You'll notice that Paul has picked up on this theme of reminding Timothy, of refreshing his memory, of pointing him back to what he already knows to be true, how quickly we forget the foundational things, how quickly we forget the basics. He says, for this reason, what reason exactly is Paul reminding Timothy of? Well, in verse 5, he has told him that he has been reminded of his sincere faith. He looks back at Timothy's life and says, Timothy, one thing I know for sure, you have a sincere faith. God has clearly saved you. You love God, you follow God, you live for God. And that is so encouraging as I look at your life and your ministry, Timothy. Because of the faith that you have that anchors your soul, I want to continue to remind you, listen to these words, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, Timothy, it's necessary that you don't take your sincere faith for granted, but you learn how to cultivate that faith and to stoke that fire. I love that imagery, don't you? The imagery of of building a fire. You've all been around a campfire before, or, or if you have a natural fireplace in your home, you know what it is to watch a fire, and, and as, as you begin to see it blazing white hot, you leave it unattended for a little bit of time, and eventually, without the fuel on the fire, without the oxygen necessary to continue to see that fire burning white hot, it begins to trickle down into a small flame, and then embers, and eventually, it can begin to go out. Paul says, Timothy, It's necessary that you constantly, this is a a present verb, present active verb, meaning this. You can almost translate it. Continue to fan into flame. Always be fanning into flame the gift of God which is in you. Don't let the fire burn down. Keep fanning it, keep fanning it, keep fanning it. So what exactly is this gift of God that needs to be fanned into flame? Now, I need to acknowledge that there's a ton of debate over what this gift of God, which is in you, is. Commentators are divided. There's all kinds of different answers. 
but I think we can make an educated guess. I think we can make some textual links that help us get a good understanding of what it is. Some commentators suggest that this gift within us is salvation, or maybe it's spiritual gift or gifts. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit. Some people say it's a special pastoral calling that's been given to Timothy. Some people say it's the gospel itself that has been entrusted, or others just say it's something else completely entirely different. Like I said, a lot of debate. debate. Here's what I believe this is pointing to. I believe this is referring broadly to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that every believer has been given the gift upon our conversion, the gift of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have submitted and surrendered your life to him as Lord and Master, at the moment of your conversion, God indwells you with his permanent abiding presence. Broadly speaking, I believe this is what Paul is talking about, about Timothy, but more specifically in terms of how the spirit of God within you is fleshed out in your life. I think there's an aspect of this where Paul is looking at Timothy and saying, Timothy, the gift of God is within you and he has well equipped you for the calling of God on your life. Everything that you've been called to in ministry, everything that God is asking of you, he has equipped you with in the presence of the spirit of God. There are unmatched resources with this gift of God within you. And so it's kind of twofold if you can see it that way. The gift of the Spirit of God is seen in one sense as a fire within us. And you can think of it like this. There's an, an, a, a negative expression given to this in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19 where Paul actually says this. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do you see the parallel there? You can fan the spirit into flame and keep it burning white hot, or you can quench the spirit by all kinds of ways, by sin in your life, by unrepentant sin, by walking in disobedience to the Lord. Paul reminds Timothy, I want to make a link for you here, that this gift was given to him, which was given to him through the laying on of hands, and this is where the more specific aspect comes into play. In fact, keep your finger in 2 Timothy, turn back probably one page in your Bible to 1 Timothy. And I want you to see in 1 Timothy chapter 4, specifically verse 14, where Paul had already encouraged and in one sense warned Timothy in this regard, reminding him of what was so vital, of what was so important, of what had taken place. Look at verse 14. He says, Timothy, do not neglect the gift, there it is again, you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Here we see that Paul, listen, was a part of a larger group of elders, of church leaders that came alongside Timothy. If you remember in the book of Acts, we saw that Timothy was known far and wide as a faithful follower of Christ. He was a young man who had been excelling in the things of the Lord, and Paul, when he came along and saw how faithful he was, how well thought of he was, both inside and outside the church, he grabbed this young man, and he began to disciple him and and invest his life into him, pour into him, build him up, and equip him for the work of the ministry. But before they left, the elders came along and laid hands on Timothy, Paul included. 
And you have to imagine that this is not an endowment of power per se. This is a recognition. It's an ordination. It is an affirmation of the giftedness of Timothy. As they lay hands on him, they're saying, we as the church leaders, we recognize how God has gifted you and called you. But I want you to notice that here, something unique happened in the life of Timothy, something that is abnormal, I would say, that is not to be expected There was some kind of a prophetic utterance given at that time. As they laid hands on him, the Spirit of God somehow prophesied, probably through one of the men standing there, one of the leaders, giving a sense of how Timothy likely was going to be used, the kind of ministry that was in store, the kind of equipping that God had given him. Ministry was gonna be hard for Timothy, but he was no ordinary individual. God had called him apart to to take the baton from the great apostle Paul. And there was a reassurance given at the time of his ordination that said, listen, Timothy, you have been given everything you need for the ministry that I have called you to. Paul's basic admonition, I just want you to see this to Timothy here, is really applicable to every single follower of Jesus Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit and his divine giftedness is to be continually fanned into flame, rekindled in our hearts. Now, I I think, listen, as I look across this room, I'm very aware that there are people in different places of spiritual maturity. There are some of you here who are not even followers of Christ. You're still checking out the church. You're still you know, checking out this Jesus guy and trying to figure out what you really believe. And, and we're, just so you know, we're so grateful that you're here. We're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that God has brought you here and what you're doing is a good thing. And we wanna help you in that. And so for you, you see, you don't even have the flame yet though. The flame of the spirit of God within you doesn't exist yet. It has been given only to those who lay down their life and submit to Jesus Christ. But for others of you in here, I mean, the flame for some of you has died out almost completely. The spirit of God still dwells within you, but there is no fire. There is no zeal. There is no passion. It hasn't been rekindled. It's been almost lost. There are embers that are burning. You know, the smoke is rising from the ashes, so to speak. And God wants to breathe within you new life this morning. He wants you to kindle up that fire once again. Some of you in here, you're doing quite well in the Lord. You're struggling here and there. You're still sinning. But God is saying to you, keep going, keep going, keep fanning that into flame. He's given the gift of the Holy Spirit to his children. And with that comes a unique giftedness. God paints you with certain spiritual gifts and abilities, and he gives them to you so that you can rightly minister to the body of Christ around you and bring God great glory in doing so. The fact, listen, that every believer has a divinely bestowed gift from God means that every believer has a divinely equipped ministry from God. Listen to what Peter says about this in 1 Peter 10 and 11 on the screen behind me. It says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your giftedness, listen Christian, your giftedness is inseparable from the calling that God has placed on your life. 
And I understand that some of you are saying, well, I don't, I don't know my calling because I don't know my giftedness. And here's what I want to encourage. Three, three ways that we can help diagnose this in our lives and we can begin to use this in our lives well. We need to first recognize and then we need to energize and then we need to utilize what God has given us. Let's back up and begin with recognize just for a second. We need to recognize, not, listen, first of all, recognize the spirit of God is in you if you're a follower of Christ. That is awesome news. That's incredible resources given to you, unmatched, unparalleled. You don't have to do ministry or serve the Lord in your own strength. He's given you everything you need in the spirit of God that is within you. But within that, recognize that you have unique gifts. There are all kinds of ways in which people try to assess and determine or to recognize the spiritual gifts. And you know, there are people who take spiritual gift tests and try to determine based on their personality and the things they like and enjoy. And some of those things have their place, but can I encourage you, the greatest way to determine and to recognize your spiritual gift is simply to start serving somewhere. Jump in. Some people will say, oh, I, I don't know where I wanna serve yet. I'm not sure where I'm gifted. I'm gonna wait until God reveals the gift to me and then I'll use that where it's applicable. Did you know that the way God often reveals the gift is simply by jumping in and serving somewhere? And when you do that, God's like, here, you see the joy you get from this? You see, you see how good you are at this? You didn't even know how good you were gonna be at that? You see how people around you are coming and affirming? You see, that's what part of recognition is here. That's what Timothy, Timothy received, the affirmation, and that's such a sweet thing. It gives such confidence and courage. Just start serving and watch how God brings your gift to life. There is a daily need to constantly cultivate the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, though. For some people, this is challenging to think about. What do you mean I have to cultivate the gift of the Spirit of God within me? And that's the second point. We need to energize. We are called here to fan into flame. What is it that energizes our service and effectiveness for God? Once our gifts are recognized, listen, to energize our faith means this, to walk in step with the Spirit of God. To be being filled with the Spirit. To being controlled by the Spirit, and here's what that requires. It requires cultivating a relationship with God. You know what God promises? He says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Listen, the closer you walk with God through his word, by the power of his spirit, the more you learn to walk in obedience to the word of God, to walk in the paths of righteousness, the more you learn to say no to sin and yes to the things of God, the more you learn to walk in daily humility and repentance, the more the Spirit of God fills and controls your life. And you see, that energizes your spiritual service unto God. Everything flows out of your personal walk with the Lord, the quality of the worship, moment by moment. Listen, this is why the most important aspect of your Christian life is your personal time with the Lord. That time devoted unto Him, the worship of Him, the meeting regularly with God's people. This is what God uses to help fan into flame the gift of the Spirit of God which is in you. And then thirdly, you're able to utilize what God has given you. As the Spirit of God is, is energized within you, the giftedness that he has given to you will be now more effective and useful. You see, the more you learn to use your giftedness energized by the Spirit of God, the more it's like a muscle, right? If you, if you don't use a muscle, it begins to atrophy. It begins to become weak and useless, but the more you use that muscle, the more the muscle is built up, it is strengthened, the more effective it becomes. Here's why we need to do this. Look at verse seven. 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul is drawing a parallel. Remember, Timothy is is under the gun. He's experiencing incredible oppression from outside the church and from within the church. There's a sense in which he might be willing to throw the towel in. He's not there yet, but Paul is wanting to encourage him to keep going to endure. And he looks at Timothy and he says, don't you understand that as you fan this gift into flame, notice what happens. First, we're able to combat our own spirit's tendencies towards fearfulness. You'll notice in your Bible that the spirit there is a a small s. That means that the interpreters, that the the Greek scholars, the multitudes of scholars who, who translated it into the English Standard Version are wanting us to understand that this is more likely not referring to the Holy Spirit at this point. It's referring to our own spirit, our own inner disposition, in other words. I think that's right in this sense. You see, apart from the Spirit of God energizing us and working through us, here's what happens. We're inclined to have this inner disposition of fear and timidity. And in fact, the word is so much stronger than, than timidity. It has this idea of you know, neglecting to fan this into flame will characterize us by this fear, this cowardice. This is what this word speaks to. An inability to fulfill the responsibilities that God has called us to. An abandonment of what we know to be right and true. You see, when we're not stoking that fire, when we're not walking with God, we're not inclined to do the things of God. We're driven more by our own feelings of fear, our own insecurities, our own longings for lesser things that will not ultimately satisfy When we fail to give attention to the Spirit of God, that gift within us, this is what happens internally. But conversely, this is what's so awesome about this, but you give attention to the Holy Spirit that is within you, and you will begin to manifest a character and a life that is filled and defined by power and love and self-control. You see, his spirit begins to take over your spirit. He begins to change your inner desires and disposition to look more like Jesus Christ. These things, power, love, and self-control, they are not things that can be produced by our own strength and our own efforts. They can only be increased and made manifest by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want you to notice just first, look at this, look at what's given to us. Look at the unmatched resources of power. That is the ability to live godly and endure hardship. Listen, apart from me, Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't live a righteous life. You can't obey the commands of God, not truly, not from the heart. But if you remain and abide in him, that's the fanning into flame right there. Look at the parallel. You're given the ability to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You're able to endure when times are hard like they were for Paul and they were for Timothy. That this is the enablement that God provides, listen, for the result that God requires. Let me say that again. The power that is afforded to you is the ability that God provides for the result that God requires. In other words, God doesn't call you to do anything in the Christian life that he does not enable you and empower you to do. You realize that, Christian? Listen to why this is so important. Because some of us, we look at what's required of us and to live this Christian life, we go, I just can't do it. It's impossible. I can't do it. And the answer to that is, yes, 
and then know because of what's been afforded to us. It begins at this place of humbly bowing before the Lord and saying, God, I can't do this on my own, but I recognize, God, that you have given me the power to be able to do what you've called me to do. You've been given the unmatched resource of power, and then secondly, love. Look at this. This is first. This is of utter importance in the Christian life. It is the first spiritual fruit that is listed in Galatians chapter five. It is the greatest commandment, is it not, to love God and to love others. All of the other commandments fit underneath this framework of love. Because if you love God, you will obey God. And if you obey God, you will love others the way he has called you to. Not selfishly, but sacrificially. Not for your glory, but for his glory. Not in your strength, but in his strength. This kind of spirit-empowered love is essential for Christian living. You cannot live the Christian life unless God lights the flame of passion and affection for him. You can't. If you're trying to live the Christian life without a deep love for God, you are walking in failure and defeat. I know you are. I know you're experiencing that in your life right now. It is not possible to live for God and to enjoy God unless you love God. And you see, the Spirit fuels that love for God that propels our Christian living. And that's why we see next comes self-control. We have the power, the ability We have the right affections through the love of God and the love of others. And then we are given the self-control. Now, some people translate this as discipline, but that kind of gives, in one sense, the wrong aspect, the wrong picture of this word. This actually means a careful, sensible thinking. In other words, it's not rash or emotional, but measured and thoughtful. And I want you to think about this. You see, when we're governed by fear, when the Spirit of God is not actively engaging our hearts, we begin to become irrational, don't we? We begin to become fretting, we begin to fret over all kinds of little things, and that begins to control us. Our emotions begin to rule the way we think. They begin to guide the decisions that we make. But listen, when we're filled with the Spirit of God, when we're enabled and we're loving, we have this wise thinking that follows. We're able to look at our situation and assess it not based necessarily on our emotions, but to look at it by the truth of God's Word. It's the ability to think clearly with the wisdom and understanding that God imparts. It comes through a knowledge and understanding of his word, empowered by the spirit of God, lived out, again, empowered by the spirit of God. And so for those of you who are sitting here saying, I can't, I can't go on, I can't change, this sin is always going to have a grip on me, I can't endure in this relationship any longer, I can't press forward, I'm stuck, I can't break through this spiritual barrier, look at what the word of God says. You have been given, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, unmatched resources, what God has called you to, he has rightly and well equipped you to. This is foundational in the Christian life. Build this base Make this a priority, tap into the unmatched resources of the Spirit. Secondly, hold on to the unfathomable riches of the gospel. 
I love this. You know, I, I have this unique benefit. I feel bad for you guys sometimes. Listen, I have this unique benefit where I've got to study this text. You know, I'm, I've preached this to myself multiple times already before this morning. And so we're sitting here and, and we're all singing these songs. And you know, all I can think about is the text I'm gonna be preaching and how it's, oh my goodness, it's just coming to life for me. Sometimes I just wanna re-sing all the songs after the service for your benefit. I get to do it in the second service. You could stick around too if you want. It's, just, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing to think how the word of God just enriches our worship. The songs we sing are so intentional. I, mean, I love how Mark just chooses songs based on the content and how they're so linked to the word of God. They flow out of the word of God. It's the word of God really that teaches us about the unmatched riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a joy to not only hear them regularly in the word, but to sing of them. Paul launches into this, listen, he, he gives the theological underpinning. What is the foundation for why we live the way we do? What is the real base that we are anchored upon? He says in verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. By the way, he's not implying that Timothy is ashamed the sense in which Paul writes, it's more that maybe Timothy's contemplated it. Maybe the thought's gone through his mind. You know, he hasn't abandoned the call, remember? He's still in it, and he's still going hard, but, it, but it's getting increasingly more difficult to persist and to persevere. He's looking maybe at Paul, and Paul's sitting in jail. Maybe Timothy, as a young pastor, is looking at Paul and saying, is this what my life is headed towards, Paul? I'm not sure I'm willing to do this. Uh, I didn't sign up for this, Paul. I mean, I signed up to be a pastor, but to sit in prison and, and to lose my head for Jesus, this is, this is a lot harder, Paul, than I was expecting it to be. And Paul looks at him and says, Timothy, don't let your heart go towards shame over the testimony about our Lord. You know, this is what Timothy was being attacked for, the same thing that Paul was being attacked for. You believe in this testimony about your Lord? Well, what is this testimony exactly? You believe in a crucified Savior? The, the, the crucifixion was viewed as the most shameful death imaginable. It was humiliating. They would ridicule. One of the first images painted in, in, in ridicule of the Christian faith was a, a donkey on a cross. That's your God. And we are faced when we think about the gospel, we are faced with three basic ways of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And I think we see them right here in this statement. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Listen, first, the first way we can publicly identify with Jesus is through a willingness to stand for him. A willingness to stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unashamedly declaring our allegiance to the Lord who is crucified, but who is risen and exalted to the right hand of the Father. You know, shame often shows itself, though, in our context and in every context before us, predominantly through silence. We simply do not say anything about Christ. We keep everything to ourselves. 
We live an isolated kind of Christianity where we don't want to offend anybody with our views or opinions. We certainly don't want to be guilty of pressing too hard on other people's views or opinions or religious beliefs. At this point in, in Timothy's life, here's what you need to understand. Christianity has actually become an illegal religion. Talk about making it difficult to stand for Jesus. There are places around the world right now where Christianity is illegal. And yet I would encourage you that even though it be illegal, even though we might suffer the scorn and humiliation of the culture around us, there is no place for silence in the Christian life. Every Christian is called to bear witness to Christ. We must be willing, if necessary, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.10, to even be made a fool for Christ. Let all the world think is a fool. Second way of public identification is through solidarity with his people, especially those who suffer on his behalf. He says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me either. It's bad enough that he's got a crucified savior that he's preaching. He's got an imprisoned mentor, right? The guy who trained him up, who he followed, is now this guy who's been put into prison. The humiliation and embarrassment. Maybe they're throwing it in Timothy's face. We are called to not be embarrassed to be associated with, but to stand with those who suffer for Christ's sake, to never leave them alone to take the hit. We stand in solidarity. The third thing is that we, too, suffer for him. You know, Jesus foretold persecution for his disciples. Listen to what he said in John 15, 18. He, he says to the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, keep also, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Paul guarantees in this letter that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. And can you hear, can you hear Paul? Can you hear his words, Romans 1.16, ringing in the background? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. For I am not ashamed, Timothy. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and neither should you be. Did you know Jesus said this? He said, for whoever is ashamed, this is Luke 9, 26, it's on the screen behind me. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ? It means regardless what comes our way, regardless of the shame and the suffering, if we are not willing to stand for Jesus Christ, if we are gonna be silent about our faith, then one day we may find out that Jesus is silent about his knowledge and acceptance of us. That is to say, listen, true Christians, true Christians are not ashamed. There are many false Christians who definitely are. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed, but endure suffering for Christ. And by the way, this kind of endurance is never accomplished by the force of human will. I love that this is the contrast that Paul makes here. You don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's done. Look, you notice here, by the power of God. You see, only when you're fanning that into flame do you also have the power to endure. We depend upon his strength and place confidence in him. 
See, how? How do we keep doing this? How do we come back to this? It's very simple. You go right into the gospel like Paul does here. You notice this? We, we do this by the power of God. And then he just, just unfolds the marvelous, un, unfathomable riches of the gospel. Listen to this. Just listen. Let us soak in who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, Timothy. Timothy, God saved us. He saved us from sin's power and sin's penalty. He stood in our place. Do you remember that? He came and he rescued us when we couldn't save ourselves. And then he called us. I love this. He called us from a life of sin to a life of devotion to him. That's what it means to be called with a holy calling. Here's a mission statement for your life right here, church. Listen, a holy God issues a holy call for believers to live a holy life. And all of this is not because of our works. It's not because somehow you had earned it through your faithfulness to God, through anything that you've done, through your own personal giftedness, talents, abilities. You couldn't purchase this. Notice why we have this saving grace and this holy calling it is only because of his own purpose and grace. Paul loves to come back to this truth. He loves it. You know, he looks at it and then he says, by the way, his purpose and grace was established before the ages began. You know, God already had a predetermined plan for you, to save you, to call you, to use you. I spoke at a men's retreat not long ago and uh, for another church, and one of the guys, I was talking to him about his testimony. And uh, we were just, just, you know, he said he grew up in the church for a long time. He had Christian family. He knew the truths of the gospel. I said, so what happened? He said, well, you know, I was baptized at an early age, um, but I didn't live for Christ. I didn't follow Christ. I didn't really love Christ. I wanted nothing really to do with Christ. I just kind of went to church and went through the motions. And he said, it wasn't until I was in my early 20s, he said, finally, it hit me. I said, well, tell me what hit you. He, he, He says, I looked at the cross, and instead of seeing it as something that is just general and ambiguous for, for, for the world, so to speak, I looked and I saw that Jesus Christ thought of me and died for me very personally, and that he did all of this thinking of me in eternity past. Did you realize, listen to how significant this is as a Christian, as a follower of Christ this morning, right? That means that sometime, right, long before the world began, long before human history, long before you ever did anything right or wrong, good or evil, God knew you. He looked at you and he said, you I will save for my purpose and by my grace. This isn't, listen, this isn't God looking down and knowing that you would choose him, okay? That is not what this is. This is God purposing, planning, and doing in Christ from before the ages began. This is specific, it is intentional. And I love, I listen, I know this is hard to grapple with in our minds. John Stott says this. He says, we have to confess that the doctrine of election is difficult to finite minds. And to that we say, amen, right? Here's what he says, though. Listen, 
but it is incontrovertibly a biblical doctrine. It emphasizes that salvation is due to God's grace alone, and it's not to man's merit or ability. This doctrine, by the way, is always emphasized in Scripture, not for our amusement or for our befuddlement, by the way. It's, it's not there just to simply confuse us and for us to go, oh, big deal, it doesn't really matter. I can't understand it. Listen, it's always emphasized by Paul and others in the scriptures for practical purposes. Here's why. Listen to what it should do for our hearts. It produces deep humility, doesn't it? And deep gratitude. It removes all grounds for boasting in our own works and our own worthiness. It brings both peace and assurance for nothing can quiet our fears or provide stability in our lives like the knowledge that our safety depends ultimately not on ourselves but on God's own purpose and grace. The very foundation of our salvation and security is God and not us. This is why in the midst of hardships, Paul holds this out to Timothy. And this is why he holds it out to us. He holds out the unfathomable riches of the gospel that literally sometimes just blow our minds and we have to stand back and and stand in awe of the love of God, don't we? How great is the love of God given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we hold on to the unfathomable riches of the gospel. Here's why. So that they will keep hold of us. Do you see that? When you cling to these truths, when they're embedded in your heart, when you hold fast to them, they will hold you no matter what comes your way. They will anchor you in the midst of the fiercest storm. One commentator said it like this, bonds of love always hold stronger than shackles of iron. When you see how much God loves you, it doesn't matter if they throw shackles in your arm for Jesus Christ, you're willing to endure because the love of God holds you fast. Not only did God plan this in ages past, verse 10, look at what he says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He takes it out of eternity past and he wants us to see that the reality of our salvation occurred, yes, in eternity past, but it also occurred in time and space through the incarnation of God himself, Jesus Christ, God in flesh. God had this plan. He purposed to save us, and he purposed to come from us from eternity past. It's now manifested itself at this present time through the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he alone is the Savior. His life, death, resurrection, and exaltation were witnessed on earth. They happened. They really happened. Historically, they happened. The divinity of Christ, by the way, is seen here. I love that Paul is not afraid to call God his Savior and Jesus Christ his Savior because they are one and the same. We see here this intimacy of father and son, don't we? In ages past, the joint purposes, the joint will, the joint desire And this is what he has done for us. He has abolished death. This means that he has rendered its power inoperative. He has broken the power and the chains of sin that once enslaved us, that once controlled us. He has released us from the power of sin and death. 
And while we know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that ultimate destruction of death is still yet to come, death right now is no longer a terror for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no fear of death for those in Christ Jesus. Instead, we understand that it is a doorway into a new existence of beauty and joy and ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment where we will gaze upon the beauty and glory of our Savior. We know that when physical life ceases, we will be immediately in the presence of our Lord. Even death's ally sin has no power over us in this life. Yes, we wrestle with it, but it no longer has the dominion it once had. It no longer has the reign it once had in our lives because God's spirit enables us to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. You notice he not only abolished death, but he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Spiritual death has been overcome by the power of God's life. We have been given true life in this world and we have been given immortality in the world to come. Church, how desperately we need to recover the certainty about the victory of Jesus Christ and to declare this good news to the world from whom death is the greatest fear and for which they are wholly unprepared. Think about that. The world around us is unprepared for death. They're unprepared to meet their maker. And how we need to be so anchored in the victory that has been accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ as we go out into this world, this dark world, and we allow the light of the gospel to shed light We declare the gospel unashamedly. We throw the light of the gospel into the darkness. We give hope to the hopeless. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, this is true for you, but don't forget what you have been called to and what you've been entrusted with. You go into this world, Timothy, and you let them know that there is hope to be found in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't give up, Timothy. There's too much at stake. Finally, he says to trust with unwavering reliance upon the Father. As we hold on to the unfathomable riches of the gospel and we allow them to take hold of us, we need to remember that we can have great confidence. Paul expresses that here. He says in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The mention of the gospel just reminds Paul of his role, his duty, his responsibility and calling, and he thrusts that back upon Timothy. Paul looks at his own life as he sits in prison and here's what he says, I was called to this, I was called to this ministry. He says, first I was called as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Paul was appointed, we know this, to play a significant role in the spread of the gospel. We saw that all through the book of Acts. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. 
His apostleship was a unique ministry that was time sensitive. It was for the formative stages of the early church. It was a role that was given for the laying of the foundation of the church to establish the first communities of faith. And he says, this is what I was given. And don't forget, Timothy, that I have passed on a responsibility in the life of the church to you. He says, I was, I was a preacher. He was sent. This word preacher is loaded with biblical metaphors. He was a herald, an ambassador. He was a messenger. And all of this paints this picture of being vested with the authority of the one who sent him. A herald, an ambassador who goes with the authority of another, has no power to change the message, and he was held responsible for the clarity and the purity with which the message was conveyed. Church, this is who we have been called to be. Heralds, ambassadors, messengers. You are both under authority and vested with authority on behalf of the king of all creation to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he says, I was a teacher Why preacher and teacher? Here's a couple helpful contrasts. Generally speaking, and it's hard to overgeneralize this because there's so much overlap, but generally a preacher proclaims and a teacher explains. One announces, the other expounds. Again, we have to be careful not to press this distinction too far because there, there is no preaching without teaching as well, but you can teach without preaching. Not me. But they work in tandem together. And while some listeners are called to this specific ministry of preaching and teaching, it's important to remember that every follower of Christ is called to be a witness for Jesus. Every one of us is called to go out and make disciples. So there is an aspect of teaching and declaring the truth on behalf of the King of Kings that is called for in the life of every follower of Christ to testify to Jesus and to go and make disciples is our mission. While not all are called into vocational full-time ministry. All are called to this great responsibility. And Paul says, it is for this reason that I suffer. It is because of this calling that we are called to suffer for Jesus. That we are despised and rejected by many in the world. That we are resisted and hated. That we are opposed and persecuted. That some are beaten and imprisoned and even killed for their faith. Such is our plight to varying degrees of all those who are faithful to fulfill the calling of being a follower of Jesus. Enduring such sufferings without shame is only possible, Paul says, because I know whom I have believed. Listen to that confidence. Listen to this trust. I know whom I have believed. Timothy, I sit in this prison and I watch you in your hardships and I just want to remind you, Timothy, we know whom we have believed. We know we have put our trust in the right place. We know the God of all creation came and lived and died for us. He rose victorious over the grave and gave us this great commission and calling. I know whom I have believed. Do you know whom you have believed today? And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Listen to the responsibility he places in God's hands, right? You don't have to guard this in your own strength is what he says. God is the one who has entrusted it and God is the one who will guard it. Listen, God has entrusted to every single follower of Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the stewardship of that deposit 
Our confidence and courage is not in our ability, but it is in God's. Because we are weak, amen? But he is strong. We waver, but he is immovable. We falter, but he is unshakable. We cling not to our own ability, but instead we trust with unwavering reliance in our great and mighty and never-failing God. Our confidence is in Him. You see Paul's desire here? In the midst of his circumstances in Timothy's, it's not their physical well-being that matters most. It's not their reputation that matters most. It's not their personal protection that matters most. It's not their little kingdom that they're trying to build, maybe, that matters most. It's God's kingdom. It's God's glory. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since this is God's gospel, we can be sure that it will be both protected and advanced by God's power. While we are called and privileged to participate in this divine mission, our confidence is that God will not allow the gospel to fail. He is able to guard what he has entrusted to me. He is able to guard, listen, until that day. Listen, that day when we stand before the throne of God, when God will judge us and all the world, when everything will be laid bare, we will see, we will see, Christian, that our confidence and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the Father has not been in vain. All the world will see that God has brought to completion everything he promised through the gospel. So here and now, through personal failure, through weakness and sin, we trust not in ourselves, but we trust in he who is able. If you're tired, if you're lagging behind, maybe it's time to start building the base or rebuilding the base Get back to the first things, back to the basics. Tap into the unmatched resources of the Spirit. Hold on to the unfathomable riches of the gospel. Trust with unwavering reliance upon the Father. Stay here, come there often, and you will find that no matter how weak or tired you may feel, you are on your way to staying and finishing strong. Father, make this so. Make this so in our lives. For God, we desire not to burn out of this race, not to falter and to fail. We desire, Lord, to run hard for you. We desire to run through the line. We desire to finish strong. So God, would you build into us as your church, as your people, a base of faith and endurance God, would you teach us that you have given us everything that we need to endure through the unmatched resources of the Spirit of God. Would you call us back, Lord, to cling to the unfathomable riches of the gospel, Lord, that you would plan this out by your grace in eternity past, and that, Lord, you would manifest through the appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the good news of the gospel, And God, would you anchor us in this reality that your power, the power of our Father, 
will hold us fast. What you have entrusted to us, Lord, you will guard until that day. God, we give ourselves to you again in a fresh way, desiring, Lord, to kindle what you have given to us. Fan it into flame, O Lord. Light us on fire for you. May it be done for the glory and honor of the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we stand and in whom we pray. Amen.